If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Wednesday afternoon. So a lot more to get to on the program. Obviously, we will talk more about the restrictions. A lot of restrictions announced yesterday by the Premier, um, essentially taking us back in, in a lot of ways to where we were in the spring, at least as applies to bars and restaurants, etc. Big difference this time around uh, applies to, to malls and retail outlets. They will stay open albeit at reduced capacity. So at least there's some consistency there. It, it, it did always seem strange that we will let certain big box stores stay open, but that uh, other retail outlets would not be allowed to stay open. So that won't be the case this time around, but to obvious, it, is, it is still going to have a lot of impacts uh, on a lot of different businesses. Uh, so we'll talk a, a lot more about that this afternoon. We are going to hear from uh, the opposition leader, Rachel Notley, coming up uh, after 1.30. We'll get their reaction to what was announced yesterday. Obviously, uh, the timing is uh, something that a lot of folks have keyed in on, whether we could have or should have done this sooner. We'll talk a lot more about that. The other big news today, uh, of course, is that Health Canada has now officially approved the vaccine from uh, Pfizer-BioNTech. And that's going to start being administered in Canada in the coming days. Plans to, to have more widespread vaccination looks as though we're aiming for April. Now, obviously, there will be other vaccines that will be approved and we'll have to figure out which we're going to to give preference to and how this is all going to work. But it is very much a, a monumentous day. This is a big, big development. And again, as I said the other day, the fact that we have vaccines that are approved, that are available, that are being administered in calendar 2020, right? The same year we really uh, fully just discovered and now understand this virus is, is a remarkable scientific and, and medical achievement. So joining us uh, for some further thoughts on uh, what this all represents, obviously some of the questions about how this is all going to play out. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Jason uh, Kindrichuk, Assistant Professor of uh, Viropathogenesis of the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba, also Canada Research Chair in Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Reemerging Viruses. Dr. Kindrichuk, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Just your own initial impressions uh, of how this is uh, all unfolded, uh, the fact that we are now at this point, we've got approval, we've, we've got one vaccine that's uh, going to be administered uh, in the coming days. It, it is quite something, isn't it? Uh, you know what, I, I, honestly, there, there are moments over the last few weeks and, and certainly uh, the last few days where I've just kind of sat down and, and tried to wrap my head around uh, what really, you know, kind of is a, a global conglomerate of researchers uh, people have been able to do in this past 12 months. Um, and these are people from across all backgrounds and, and all, you know, political backgrounds and all ethnic backgrounds that they globally have come together to not only produce the Pfizer vaccine, but to produce a handful of vaccines that are likely going to be licensed in record time. It's, it, it is such a historic achievement. I, obviously, there, there were those who wonder whether it's all been too fast. And, and certainly we have found ways to, to try to safely expedite this process. But what do you say to those who, who worry that this has, has been rushed? 
You know, they, there was actually uh, an excellent paper that came out um, that it, it came out in Nature uh, probably a couple months ago by Dr. Florian Kramer uh, out of uh, Mount Sinai in the U.S. And he basically discussed this whole idea of, you know, really vaccine development in the age of, of COVID-19. And he put together this amazing figure of showing basically the, you know, schematically what it looks like to take a vaccine from bench to bedside normally versus what we've done this year. And what it gives you an idea of is this whole difference between fast tracking versus expediting um, and how basically they've been able to take the different you know, clinical trials, uh, the phases of clinical trials, overlap those, do the you know, kind of um, you know, roll, uh, continual rolling of uh, data release to, to different health uh, networks um, to basically expedite this process. And, and to me, that, that is the perfect figure to show everybody to say, here is why all the safety checks, all the normal procedures have still been in place. We have just been able to figure a way out to make this work in the face of uh, really, a, truly a global pandemic of historic proportions. It was fascinating. I was reading about uh, the work Moderna did on its vaccine. And in, for all intents and purposes, we had a vaccine before we really even had a pandemic that mm-hmm. back in January, when the genome of this virus was published, uh, it took scientists and Moderna a few days to, to figure out what kind of a, a vaccine would be best to target that, which is this messenger RNA approach, which is, is, is new to a lot of us that, that our vaccines have not involved this approach. It's a unique way of, of targeting this virus, sort of creating this, this immune response by zeroing in on this spike protein and, and basically telling the body to kind of reproduce that. Explain how this all works. Yeah, you know what, I've, I've kind of used this IKEA analogy for this where, um, you know, when, when we think about the idea of, of mRNA, um, a lot of people are, you know, are asking the questions of, well, how does that interact with our DNA and does it have anything to do with our cells? And I kind of say it's like buying a piece of furniture from IKEA. You can bring it inside your house, you can put the parts together, and you create a specific product. Um, but you can't basically take those pieces that come along with that furniture and recreate the foundation of your house. You can't alter basically what your house looks like. All you're doing is adding something new to your house and something very specific. That's what we're doing with this, with the, basically this mRNA technology. It's building off of our own understanding of our own RNA. And we're basically creating, uh, the, you know, an ability to, to generate the protein for the virus within our cells. And rather than actually doing what we would normally do, which is, you know, basically growing up the protein and purifying it in laboratories, this actually takes a lot uh, less time. Um, and, and we can expedite and, and scale up the process a lot faster. And, and certainly the results with what we've seen have been extremely promising. And, and it's a platform that people have been pursuing for well over a decade. Um, it's just that for you know this particular um, uh, uh, virus, it actually seems to work very, very well in terms of generating immune responses. Yeah, yeah, the, the efficacy numbers are quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Health Canada just pointed out because uh, Pfizer is still doing clinical trials that would involve children, so this is not approved for those under the age of sixteen. Uh, those with severe allergies are, are also being told for now to to avoid. Uh, the vaccine. So th- th- there are still some some groups that this won't be available for, will not be recommended for just yet. Certainly. And, and I think the, the thing to keep in mind is, again, we're, we are not beholden to one single vaccine technology with this. Um, you know, we, we look at the, obviously, the uh, uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine that's coming through, the AstraZeneca vaccine that's coming through, and then you know, probably well over a, a dozen or a few dozen 
that are in uh, various stages of clinical trials. Um, we're looking at vaccines that uh, will actually be able to spread out across the broad range of, of ages as well as underlying uh, health issues. So it, it gives us that hope that we will be able to to really serve the entire community, regardless of what the, what the background and, and age is. And, and that's ultimately what we need to do. We, we can't have just a single vaccine for the globe. It, it is going to be something that, you know, we, we have to use multiple types of vaccines. And, and I think we're, we're doing it the right way. Yeah, I think it, it looks all very promising in the long run. There is the, the question, too, about, you know, preventing illness versus preventing infection. I mean, obviously, yeah. if we could reduce every case to mild or asymptomatic, that would be a massive achievement. But there is that lingering question, right? Are these vaccines able to pre- prevent infection altogether? Do we have clear answers yet? We don't. And that's the, you know, kind of the, the lingering issue for us is whether or not we are actually going to see, you know, something along the lines of sterilizing immunity where it actually protects you from becoming infected as opposed to just reducing severe illness. Um, the data so far right now doesn't really suggest that, that we are seeing, you know, clear indications that it stops transmission. Um, the hope is, is that if we can get a broad enough, uh, you know, kind of distribution of this vaccine, that what you can do is you can reduce transmission numbers on top of physical distancing and masking. Um, and once you get those numbers down, basically you're going to stop the virus from being able to transmit in the community because everybody will have this underlying uh, protection from severe disease and, and you won't see the, the virus being able to roll around as much. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we will get a better sense of what this looks like, hopefully in the, in the next few months between what's going on in the UK and Canada uh, in regards to transmission. And certainly it's on all of our minds. It is, but certainly a, a historic day in many ways and, and some, some things to be optimistic about. Uh, Dr. Kindertuck, appreciate the insight and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Take care. All right, you as well. Uh, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk at the University of Manitoba, expert in the field of virology and uh, emerging viruses in particular. So his thoughts on what this all represents. And uh, yeah, it is a big day. So Health Canada now has uh, officially approved the vaccine, uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Uh, Dr. Supriya Sharma, the chief medical officer with the regulatory branch of Health Canada, called it a monumentous occasion, an exceptional day for Canada. Says in a year where we haven't had a lot of good news, this is a bit of good news. And I think we should take a moment to acknowledge that and then we're all going to get back to work. Now, she stresses that this has been a thorough process, as thorough for any other drug or vaccine seeking green, uh, the green light for use in Canada. Said, I would say to Canadians, we've authorized it. If it's their turn to get the vaccine, they should absolutely feel comfortable getting that. So it was the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine that was been, has been approved. Obviously, there's still a few in, in the queue here, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, and, and some others that are in Phase 3 or even those that are in Phase 2 and Phase 1 clinical trials. Uh, so there will be more and different vaccines available. And obviously, as Dr. Kintrachuk says, we're going to learn more about these uh, as we go along. But uh, what we've seen so far, very, very encouraging. Joining us for some reaction to all of this uh, is uh, opposition leader, NDP leader, former Premier Rachel Notley. Ms. Notley, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Yeah, it's good to be here. All right, well, let me get your reaction, um, you know, on on these measures themselves, uh, whether this uh, could have or should have been implemented sooner, whether this goes far enough. uh, What what are your thoughts? Well, I think it's very clear that uh, we are probably going to have to uh, tolerate um, both deeper and and uh, longer lasting restrictions than would otherwise have been the case had uh, Jason Kenney uh, listened to the medical experts and the public health experts and others earlier on in this crisis. So. 
that is the frustrating thing. And of course, obvious, it's obviously it's obvious now that we've embarked upon some very significant uh, um, social restrictions uh, in, in around people's homes uh, over Christmas. And the question is, could we have vo- avoided that if, if this had happened earlier? Um, but what I will say, what is most important is that uh, at the beginning of November, um, we had, or the end, in October when our house, the legislature started and we first started talking about these things, we've seen um, a six-fold increase in the number of people in ICU, in the number of people in hospital, in the number of active cases, and even the, uh, and the doubling of the number of deaths. And all of these are things we should have acted to stop sooner. The, the politicization of this, I, I, I've lamented that somewhat. I mean, you know, people can disagree over these measures or the timing of all of this, but I think it was a, a week or two ago, and you'd suggested that maybe there was a need for some of this, a need to shut down indoor dining, for example. Uh, and they went after you pretty hard on that. I mean, they, they've certainly uh, not held back in, in this, this rhetoric against these kinds of health measures that they themselves have now accepted are, are necessary. What do you make of that? Well, yeah, I mean, I will say it's frustrating when you look at the medical evidence, you look at the expert advice, uh, and you use a bit of common sense to say, gee, uh, having a whole bunch of people in a, indoors together without masks is probably not your best foot forward for limiting the spread. Uh, and then, you know, to be called anti-Albertan and anti-small business uh, was, was, you know, it was frustrating because it's not a helpful debate. Because quite honestly, even as we were talking about those things and saying we needed to look at those kinds of measures, we were also saying, listen, we get how hard this will be for these business owners. And we also are suggesting uh, a number of supports uh, to help them through those difficult times, something that, frankly, we've been doing since the spring. So it didn't have to be an either-or conversation, and it didn't need to be one where we were being demonized. We were just looking at uh, best practices from other jurisdictions, evidence that was coming out about uh, spread in certain circumstances, and, and trying to think of ways in which we could get a, a handle on a problem which, to be clear, was has gone well past uh, where it was in any other province that has since that has otherwise adopted these measures, we waited long after other provinces. Our infection rate is significantly higher, and now as a result of that, the time it takes to bring the infection rate down is going to be longer, and these restrictions will will likely have to be in place longer. Well, I think that that may be the unfortunate reality. Now, you mentioned those supports for businesses, and and it was something that was addressed yesterday, that the Alberta government is going to uh, make more money available. They've dropped the threshold for eligibility. So, I I mean, look, if we're going to do this, those supports need to be there. Have have they done enough, though, in your view? So, listen, we were glad to hear that news. Um, We had uh, proposed that some time ago, uh, that we drop the uh, threshold for eligibility because we knew there were lots of businesses that couldn't access it. And, um, and, uh, of course, we also had proposed uh, $25,000 as well for the grant, so a little bit more than what they proposed. One of the challenges we have is that we've heard from many businesses that, in fact, this support is coming too late. There's lots of businesses that have since gone under and we were proposing these kinds of things in the spring but more importantly at this point going forward to try to be a bit more productive uh, we also had proposed six other things that would support small businesses uh, which are on our we've got they exist on the web at albertasfuture.ca but looking at things like uh, low interest or zero interest credit access 
uh, again, reinstating the commercial eviction ban, uh, reinstating the uh, the um, uh, ban on utility cutoff, uh, cutting uh, insurance costs for these businesses, and in putting in place a business risk index so that we don't have the kind of situation we had yesterday where businesses were had no idea what was coming. We know this is going to go on for a while, so why not put in place a business risk index so businesses can track what's coming and what they should prepare for. So those are a few of the ideas we had in place. They're not exhaustive. We think that we should be having pretty open conversations about what small business needs. And it absolutely is the role of government to step up and support them through this time. So uh, we agree with the Fed, with the provincial government on that. So we shouldn't be pitting, uh, fighting with each other on this. We should just be listening to the ideas and figuring out how best to support these small businesses. In terms of using this this opportunity to to prepare a better response going forward, and, and I think one of the more lamentable things that's happened over the last month is just, you know, the utter collapse of our contact tracing. You know, certainly what we're seeing in, in hospitals has been concerning as well. So if, if this buys us some time, whether it's four weeks or longer, to get some numbers down, ease the pressure on the system, how, how do we make use of that time? What What do we need to have in place coming out of this to ensure we don't lapse right back into this? Right. Well, I will say, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to sound negative, but I think that what we know is these kinds of measures take a while uh, to take effect. So it's probably going to be a couple of weeks before we see the case count you know, hopefully start to come down a bit. And we know that the the biggest pressures, the hospitalizations and the ICU admissions actually come two or three weeks after that. So we're going to be uh, dealing with uh, a, a crisis level in our healthcare system uh, for a few weeks to come in, because it's dealing with decisions, with things, factors that were in place up until yesterday. But that being said, going forward, uh, what we should be doing, something that we proposed last spring, is we have to uh, systematically and centrally uh, put together the resources to hire, to train, uh, and to keep safe an adequate number of staff in continuing care and in other healthcare settings uh, to support Albertans. Uh, and particularly those most vulnerable uh, seniors. Um, as well, we need to aggressively be working on hiring contact tracers. Now, I understand they are finally working on that, but again, we, we rolled that out uh, six weeks ago. We said, come on, we need 1,300 full-time contact tracers. They now, just a couple of days ago, said, yeah, we're looking for 1,800 part-time. That's fine. Let's get on it. Let's make it happen. Um, so those are two things we have to do. The, the having the, the, a number, the, an adequate number of folks who are caring for seniors and other vulnerable uh, citizens in the healthcare setting is critical because that way we can get back to the situation where they're not moving from center to center and they're not spreading the virus. And so that doesn't happen overnight. They must take the $300 million that the federal government has offered them that they've rejected um, and they must add their own money and they must get to work on that. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Rachel uh, Notley, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. All right. You take care. You as well. Uh, that is opposition leader, NDP leader, former Premier Rachel Notley, and her thoughts on the announcement yesterday, how it got to this point, what we need to do going forward. Obviously, one of the industries hard hit by these uh, latest rounds of restrictions and also by the pandemic itself has been the movie theater industry. And yes, theaters appear to be included in these new restrictions announced yesterday by uh, Alberta. That's been the case in other provinces as well. 
So it's, it's a real double whammy for the movie industry, movie theater industry, because you've got these restrictions. You've also got very few movies actually being released right now. And on top of all of that, with the announcement the other day from Warner Brothers that their entire slate of big 2021 releases are going to be released not just in theaters, but simultaneously on streaming on HBO Max in the United States. Now, we don't have that here. So maybe there's a silver lining for Canadian movie theaters, but uh, it does raise a lot of questions about the movie industry going forward and what it means for movie theaters. So some big, big questions. Joining us to talk about all of this, uh, very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon. Uh, you know him as one of the dragons on CBC's The Dragon's Den. You also know him as Mr. Sunshine, MrSunshine.com. Uh, Vince Guzzo is president and CEO of Cinema Guzzo, a, a movie theater chain in Quebec. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Vince, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. Well, and you've already been dealing with uh, restrictions in Quebec now for several weeks that have impacted uh, your business. Uh, we're seeing other provinces move in that direction. You know, your, your thoughts on where movie theaters fit into all of this and, and whether it makes sense to target them right now? So, you, you know, look, when the first wave occurred in, uh, in you know, middle of March, uh, April, May, I was the first one to say, you know, you should not be closing theaters. Theaters have always been a reference point to normality, to stability, to the general North American public. Uh, I was told that I wasn't an epidemiologist and therefore mind my business. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did tell them that uh, mental health issues were going to start rising if we acted too quickly on this and we didn't reflect properly, which basically meant that theaters were reopened in July because people had been confined in Quebec for about three months. When we reopened, um, you know, there was still an issue about people coming back to Montreal, coming to the theaters. People were in the suburbs. I was in Toronto, you know, uh, end of August, early September for filming a Dragon's Den in the downtown area near the Shangri-La Hotel and CBC were, you know, like a desert. There was nobody there. Um, so movie theaters have been re-shut down now in Quebec since the 1st of October. Uh, the problem the second time around, and I think, you know, it's pretty clear, there was no cases that can be traced back to a movie theater. There, no movie theater got caught, you know, doing something it wasn't supposed to do with, this, with the whole restrictions and the sanitary regulation that was put into place. We set up a whole disinfecting of the whole auditorium after every showing. After two months, I did ask the question to our premier, and I said, two months ago, you shut us down, and cases were at about 700 cases a day. You shut us down, you shut restaurants down, you shut the gyms down. And now you're at 2,000 cases a day. Is that not clear enough to you that movie theaters have nothing to do with the problem? Mm -hmm. That it's not coming out of theaters. Um, but I think that the message that they're trying to send out is the one that you must be so overly vigilant that we do not want you in any way to entertain yourself or to have fun, let's put it that way, or to distract yourself so that you're always focused on this pandemic, um, I believe in not not directly, but in very indirect ways, the World Health Organization did allude to the fact that coronavirus was no longer a pandemic, but it was now endemic, meaning we were going to have to live with it, vaccine or no vaccine. And I think that that is what it is. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that with uh, 
with you know out with 2020 and in with 2021 and 2021 is going to be better than 2020 that's for sure yeah, let's hope so. Uh, and let's look ahead to 2021. And a lot of people were, were kind of shocked by this announcement from Warner Brothers. So the, you know, all of these big movies they plan on releasing next year, that they're going to release them on streaming at the same time they're releasing them in theaters. What, what's, what was your reaction to that? Well, so my first reaction was, and you have to remember, they, they made this announcement in two, in two ways. First, they announced just Wonder Woman, um, mm-hmm. which I think was, okay, let's see what the reaction is. I know I got a call within half hour of that announcement being made. And, you know, the, some friends of mine at Warner Brothers said, before you flip your, you know, and we won't say that word on air, but uh, uh, can we explain it to you? And I said, you don't have to explain anything to me. You're going to go on HBO Max. There is no HBO Max in Canada the same way there is in the U.S. And there is none in French. So you're not going to get an argument out of me. And plus, my theaters are shut down. And literally the day after our premier said we were shut down till January 11th. So that, that was said and done. The fact that now they're announcing their whole 2021 slate, you know, there's something a lot of people don't realize about the movie business. We're big at announcements. Um, and then we, it's sort of our, when we make an announcement in the movie business, or at least the studio side of it, it's almost like a beta test. Let's announce it. Let's see how people react. And then we'll adjust ourselves as we go. So we know Wonder Woman will will do that. I think they're going to wait and see how many new subscriptions, because it's all about new subscriptions, will they get to HBO Max. They've also now clarified that they're limiting the HBO Max to the U.S. territory. So international is theatrical only. And in the U.S., they're going to release simultaneously theater and HBO Max for 30 days. After 30 days, it comes off HBO Max. Don't ask me why, because I don't understand that part. But what I do know, and I've mentioned this to other media, there is, you know, there's only one country in the world that I know that has the comment in God we trust on their dollar bill, on their money, and it's the U.S. And if there is a God in the U.S., it's a monetary God. And the studios will only respond to money decision, which means I have to believe that this is nothing else but a huge test for Warner Brothers. They've tested this kind of principle in Portugal and whatever in the last 10 years. The information and the data never came out, which usually means that it was not conclusive or not positive for the studio or else they would have shared the information. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still be a big believer uh, that you cannot make money or pay, cover your expenses uh, for a movie like Wonder Woman by only using streaming platforms. In other words, right. uh, you know, Walt Disney would not have made its cut of $2.7 billion, which was about $1.6 billion uh, uh, of film royalties from theatrical. They no platform would ever have generated that kind of money. And even if you put them collectively together, none of them would have. So the only way to maximize money is to go theatrical. But there is the reality. The reality is that there are movies that are made, and after and only after they're made, do they realize they will not be making $2 billion off it. And so how do we limit our losses? And so we mm-hmm. want to get, you know, and, 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 and I don't know if, 
if a lot of you realize this, but movie theaters are used by studios as a way of promoting their movie for streaming platforms or for PBOD or BOD. In other words, if a movie goes straight to streaming, it has X amount of, uh, of eyeballs that will want to watch it. If you go through a theater, if you're going through the theater business and you have a real theatrical release, you will get five to six times more eyeballs. Therefore, they want us for that. The problem is they don't want to wait sometimes 60 days after the movie's no longer playing in theaters to maximize or capitalize on those eyeballs. Uh, and so there's discussions, compromises that are happening. And one of the ideas I put on the table is to have dynamic movie pricing. In other words, you would have movies at, you know, full price, $12. Then you'd have movies at $8 and movies at $4. Uh, and, and we would determine that based on the exclusivity windows for theatrical. So, you know, because we are one of the only industries left in the world that charges you the same price, irrespective of the product you're coming to see. So whether you come and watch Avengers, Titanic, uh, uh, you know, an obscure Iranian movie or, or, or an art picture or something that's not commercially as, you know, potentially big as whatever, it's always the same price. And that's wrong. You know, I mean, uh, even in live entertainment, you'll pay $200 to watch Celine Dion, but you'll only pay 100 bucks maybe to watch, uh, you know, the Spice Girls. I don't know. Right. You know? So <laughs> yes, exactly. th- there's, no, there's no dynamic pricing in the movie industry, and that's not normal. It's not healthy uh, uh, for anybody. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, ultimately, I mean, it comes down to, to what the consumers want. And, and maybe right now people are comfortable just staying home and, and watching uh, movies or TV on their couch. But I, I think, I mean, I, I certainly speak for myself. And I mean, I'm eager to get back to the theater experience. I miss going to the theater watching movies. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people, right? So ultimately, the test next year, I mean, it's going to be what, what do consumers want, right? That's right. So, so you have to remember, right? I, I did this comparison i believe it was in 2012 on a very popular french show on on cbc french which was uh you know so one of the one of the hosts there said to me but you know mr good so truth of the matter is everybody's got home theater now and that's why theater attendance is down it's not because the quality the commercial viability or, or quality of movies is down it's just you know people have their own home entertainment thing so i paused i looked at him and i said you have a kitchen in your home and he goes yeah that stopped you from going to the restaurant? So everybody <laughs> laughed, and he said, no, yeah, I guess you're right. And it's the same thing here, right? Watching a movie at home versus watching a movie in theater. Right now, what's going on is because the price point is what it is, call it 12 there are people who will say, I will go out to the theaters to watch Avengers, James Bond, uh, Black Panther, Wonder Woman. That's mm-hmm. worth 12 bucks. I'm getting my money's worth. But when it comes to a, a different kind of movie, which may be just as good on a quality level, but the awareness, the, the, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the anticipation for that movie may not be there, well, now it's a little riskier. Now I don't think I'm going to get my money's worth at, at 12 bucks. But if it was at $8, maybe I'd reconsider. If it was at $4, maybe I'd go. And the proof we have of that is if you go to most university towns, like I, you know, I was a student in uh, at London, Ontario, at Western, there used to be what you call today a repertoire theater there that would show old movies for four ninety nine, and every Friday, Saturday, it was packed of university students willing to pay that price because they didn't want to pay twelve bucks to go to a regular famous players or cineplex theater back then, 
and, and watch the latest movie. So it's a question of budget. And I think that right now people are staying at home because, first and foremost, they're being told to stay at home. Second of all, mm-hmm. we have not created a price dynamic right now. What we've done is we've said to them, whether you eat hamburger minced meat or you eat filet mignon or you eat Wagyu beef, you're going to pay $12. And so people are saying, well, wait up a minute. What are you offering me? Well, we don't have any Wagyu beef this, uh, this <laughs> month because the studios are holding back the big titles, but they've given us some hamburger meat. Well, I don't want to pay 12 bucks for hamburger meat. That's, what, that's the reasoning of people, and people are staying home for that. It's going to be our job to explain to the studios who, while we all know studios are not allowed to get involved in the pricing of movies because it's called price fixing and they've they, they got to stay away from that, the truth of the matter is that there is a problem. The problem is that in most licensing agreements with the studios, it is written that you cannot charge less for their movie than any other picture you're charging. So basically it says you got to charge the same price for all the movies. That's what it re- and that's price fixing. And so, you know, we've had to present to them the argument that you got to let us. Now, on the flip side, we also want to be very respectful of the artists and the people who make these movies, and we don't want to seem to be prejudging a movie, right? I don't want to say because I think this is not a you know, for example, because I don't like Woody Allen movies, I'm going to charge two dollars, and because I like you know this kind of movie, you know, Chris Nolan movies, I'm going to charge fifteen dollars. That's not how it should be determined. It should be determined like everything else is determined on commercial viability, commercial desirability, and also about exclusivity. The more something is exclusive, the more it's worth more. So if the exclusivity is longer in movie theaters, we should charge more for it. And if it's less, because it's going to be on other platforms and, and so forth and so forth, those things cost less. That's the way right. the rest of the world works, except for the movie business right now. Yeah. Well, makes sense. We'll see how it all plays out in the months ahead. Uh, MrSunshine.com is the website. Uh, Vince, we got to leave it there, but I always appreciate the chat. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All the best. That is uh, the one and only Mr. Sunshine, uh, Vince uh, Guzzo, one of the dragons on the Dragon's Den, and, of course, a uh, movie theater mogul in the province of Quebec, president and CEO of Cinema Guzzo, Quebec's largest chain of independent movie theaters. So, yeah, I mean, look, we're talking about all kinds of businesses this year. And at the moment, specifically, uh, they've been impacted, disrupted uh, by the pandemic, by various health restrictions. Certainly the movie theater industry in, in so many ways has been impacted, either because they've been forced to close, either because people just don't want to go, either because there's no movies to show. And it's a, a weird dynamic right now, isn't it? Because studios have always needed the theaters. Theaters have always needed the studios. It's a relationship that's worked well. Uh, but it's being strained at the moment. And it'll be interesting to see how this uh, streaming experiment works next year. Uh, this week marks two years uh, since the arbitrary detention in China of two Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Now, there have been some, some questions in recent days about whether there's a, a possible breakthrough coming in all of this. And, and it's uh, more to do with the uh, Meng Wanzhou situation. Of course, the Huawei chief financial officer, daughter of the company's founder, remains in Vancouver, facing extradition to the United States, where she faces some, some serious charges. Now, there have been some rumors in recent days about a possible plea deal in that case. And then the question, well, if Meng Wanzhou is, is released, would that then mean that the two Michaels would be released? Clearly, they were kidnapped, essentially, in retaliation. Uh, for the Meng Wanzhou situation, although China has not officially acknowledged that. 
it's it's hard to say. We we don't know whether there's a plea deal in the works, but obviously, even if there is, we don't know what it would mean for the two Michaels. And maybe China sees uh, you know some value in that that hostage diplomacy approach. Maybe they want to put more pressure on Canada on, on another issue. Uh, so I don't know that we should look for this to to be resolved necessarily, but um, it's it's something to keep a close eye on. Obviously, look, there's still some big questions around a relationship with China. The federal government has promised a, a new framework on, on dealing with China. We've yet to see that. We've got, of course, a, a new president coming in in the United States, and that could mean a change in direction on, on certain matters as well. So joining us uh, for some thoughts on, on all of this, very pleased to, to welcome back to the program uh, here this afternoon one of Canada's leading experts on uh, Canada-China relations, uh, Charles Burton, uh, who's with the uh, McDonald laurier Institute, a uh, fellow with their... Uh, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest uh, Abroad, also a non-resident uh, senior fellow with the European Values Center for Security Policy and a professor of political science at Brock University. Charles, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Uh, so first of all, we're, we're hearing conflicting uh, stories, I think, about whether there, there might be a plea deal in the works regarding Meng Wanzhou. What, what are you hearing? Well, I mean, her father, who is the CEO of Huawei, uh, Ren Zhengfei, has said on several occasions that Huawei would never acknowledge any culpability in this matter. They don't want to acknowledge that they, in fact, have um, deceived their creditors, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, and, in effect, uh, engaged in bank fraud if those charges uh, stand up once they come to court in the United States. So the idea that they would accept a deferred prosecution agreement strikes me as not that likely um, of course, there's the other concern for them that if Ms. Meng was, in fact, transported to the United States where she could face decades in prison under these serious charges, that she might go state's evidence and provide information about any relationship Huawei might have with Chinese security and intelligence. But I think that, um, you know, they're they're counting on either Joe Biden repudiating the uh, Trump strategy in this matter and um, uh, just canceling the charges and the extradition would then become moot, you know, hopefully in a triangular negotiation between the Americans, the Canadians, and the Chinese that would uh, result in the release of Kovrigan's favor. And Mr. Biden, if he makes his first uh, foreign visit as a U.S. president uh, coming to Canada, surely celebrated by all of us, or that at the very end of the process of the extradition hearing, that whoever is the Canadian Minister of Justice will, on uh, national interest grounds, simply uh, say that, um, you know, hearing's over, they've determined this, but we're still not sending this monk to the United States to face charges because it would go against the interests of Canada. So I, I'm not thinking this deferred prosecution agreement uh, mounts to much, but, uh, you know, hope springs eternal. It would be great if we could get this... Uh, matter off our plate and start negotiating for the return of Michael Kovrick and Michael Saver uh, so that they can see their families soon in the new year. Yeah, and, and that's that's the hope, obviously. Um, you know, China's never really acknowledged that this is related to, to the Meng Wanzhou situation. I think it's, it's pretty obvious that it is. How does Canada need to approach this then in, in terms of, you know, looking to the U.S. for some support or even, you know, negotiating with China? Well, uh, you know, we tried to get the Trump administration to uh, exert pressure on the Chinese authorities, and they said that they did, but clearly it made no difference. 
Uh, I think essentially what the Chinese see is a weak Canada who is um, cowed into non-action on several issues because of the holding of Kovrigan's favor. So, you know, we don't make a decision on Huawei. We don't make a decision on Chinese state acquisition of of mines in critical locations in the Arctic. We don't... uh, you know, we don't respond when the Chinese uh, arbitrarily violate $3 billion worth of canola seed contracts. We don't do anything about fentanyl. We don't do anything about Chinese state harassment of uh, Tibetans and, and Uyghurs here in Canada, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So from the Chinese point of view, uh, the hostage diplomacy thing seems to be an effective technique to, to further their interests in our country. Right, which doesn't bode well for the two Michaels, then. that China may see reasons to continue this approach. I mean, unless we make it clear to China that, you know, hostage diplomacy is not going to, uh, is not going to uh, change uh, Canada from doing the right thing, you know, and, and we should be fighting the fentanyl, and we should be standing up for the uh, people in Hong Kong who will be subject to political persecution under uh, what we regard as an illegal national security act which violates the sino-british joint declaration that canada endorsed when it went into the u.n why did we endorse it if we're just going to let them you know run right over it without us responding and we should be dealing with senior chinese communist officials who are complicit in the uh, genocidal um, policies against the the uyghurs in northwest china particularly those who have significant assets here in canada you know why do we let them continue to 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 exploit the benefits of our country when when uh, they're engaged in in uh, crimes against humanity it just doesn't make sense well, I mean, as you, as you alluded to a moment ago, we, we seem on numerous issues to be frozen by inaction, and, and maybe that attests to why the government has yet to present this, this new proposed framework uh, with regard to dealing with China. Is it that same sort of inaction that, that we're seeing at play, or this kind of paralysis on the government's part on this issue? Yeah, I think so, and I suspect that within Cabinet there are probably different views on what we should be doing with China, and that's why evidently after promising us that we would see a, a new China policy but before the end of the year and setting up a unit in foreign affairs to coordinate that um, you know one can tell from the uh, vacillating statements of our foreign minister uh, Francois Philippe Champagne that uh, I don't think we're going to see any any China reset and we're just going to carry on the same way that we've been doing so far and in the meantime Mr. Kovrick and Mr. Favor are you know getting up to 800 days in Chinese prison hell while we dither about. Uh, back to the the uh, president-elect for a moment, and I, I think we, we've got a lot of hope invested in the uh, in the new president, maybe making this more of a priority, and and helping us to resolve the situation that way. I mean, certainly there's been some inconsistencies from the Trump administration where they've, you know, been tough on China in some respects, and where they've been more favorable to China in, in trying to get a trade deal. How, what kind of a, an approach do you expect from from President Biden on this? Well, you know, I think that uh, even um, under the current U.S. administration with Mike Pompeo, there was a desire to try and get uh, allies working together to come up with a common front against China's um, violations of the norms of diplomacy and trade. Um, Mr. Biden, um, in an article in U.S. publication Foreign Affairs, you know, as part of his election campaign, um, said that setting up a 
uh, an alliance of democracies to defend the rules-based international order will be his job one in foreign affairs when he gets into office. Uh, you know, I think uh, when you get to my age, you become a bit cynical about election sure. promises. Uh, but, you know, if that's true, then I think Canada would surely join. And perhaps we'd be emboldened to stand up to China more if we're doing it in concert with other countries. In other words, you know, if we're going to do Magnitsky sanctions, that they would occur simultaneously by, you know, all our like-minded allies under the coordination of the United States, which would take the pressure of retaliation off Canada. And aside from which, you know, Canada is a country that loves to join multilateral associations. We don't like to be left out. And so if, if standards were set up, by our like-minded allies who've been much tougher on China than we have for the most part, then I think Canada would comply, and that would be good news for us in terms of showing the Chinese government that we've got some backbone and that it would be better for them if they let Kovrigan's favor come home. Well, that would be welcome indeed. So we'll see what the coming weeks bring us. Uh, appreciate the insight as always. Professor Burton, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Good to speak with you, Rob. Likewise. Uh, Charles Burton, uh, Associate Professor at uh, Brock University, uh, Department of Political Science, a senior fellow at the uh, McDonald Laurier Institute uh, with their Center for Advancing uh, Canadian Interests Abroad and uh, what they focus specifically on Canada-China relations. So, as he says, maybe there's some, some reason for hope here that we'll see uh, some change, we'll see some almost some backbone maybe from from the government on this issue i don't know maybe that is a lot to ask for thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast don't forget to subscribe rate and review for free at apple Podcasts, google play or wherever you find your podcast you can also find me on twitter at rob breckenridge you can email me rob at 770chqr.com talk to you next time afternoons with rob breckenridge starting at 12 30 on news talk 770 calgary